Amen. Last year, the evangelical world was abuzz about a podcast put on by Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. The podcast told the story of explosive growth in a church in Seattle, Washington called Mars Hill Church. What started as a home Bible study in 1996 exploded to 15 locations across four states with over 15,000 members. This was a ministry that by every account was wildly successful, rapidly growing. They launched a, out of that church, a church planting ministry that still exists today and has planted hundreds if not thousands of churches across the world. They launched a publishing company and published scores of books provided to help Christians with gospel-centered resources. The main preaching pastor at the church grew to the number one preacher on iTunes with more than 260,000 sermon views online every single week. But the meteoric rise of Mars Hill Church would be sadly short-lived. Eighteen years after it launched, the church that became one of the fastest-growing churches in the country shut its doors for good. The story of Mars Hill Church is a story with a lot of sad and shocking twists and turns. But it's also, for us, a parable of sorts about church growth. It is a painful reminder that not all church growth is equal. Something can look big and and massive and growing and healthy on the outside, and yet on the inside, very unhealthy and collapse quite quickly. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul the Apostle, with the Spirit's inspiration, wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus around 60 A.D., so about 30 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has been in Ephesus and helped start a church there, and he writes this letter to either that church or churches in that region. And among other things, one of the things that Paul writes about is what healthy growth should look like in a church. What does it look like for a church to be healthy, to be growing in a healthy way? 
I think the answer for us is seen in our text in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to invite you, if you will, to follow along with me, beginning in verse 11. So we read the passage again, and I want you to listen for any language that talks about growth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Dear brother, sister, friend, not all church growth is created equal. If you're here as a member or prospective member of Pocosin Baptist Church, my desire for this place and for this people is that we would experience healthy growth. So, with that in mind, this morning from our text, I want us to consider the marks of, a health, of healthy growth. What does it look like? The means to healthy growth. What does God use to accomplish healthy growth? And then apply those truths and consider a method for healthy growth here at Pocosin Baptist Church. So number one from the text, I want you to consider the marks of healthy growth. As explosive as the growth was at Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, there was, it turns out, a lot that was unhealthy. But what does healthy growth look like? I want you to notice in the text what's not mentioned. You will not find when Paul talks about a church growing up or building itself up in love or reaching mature manhood or growing to the measure of the stature of Christ, you will not find Paul mention anything about the number of baptisms. Now, how many people we baptize is an important thing, and we ought to care about such things. And yet, that's not the key mark of healthy growth. He doesn't mention anything about the, the number of people in the pews or in the chairs. It happened to be this morning. He, he doesn't mention anything about the number of churches that have been planted he doesn't say anything about how big the budget is, how much money is being given to this or that ministry or cause. He doesn't say anything about how many events you have 
or how many missions programs you have, or how many ministries you support. All of those things have their place and they matter, but none of them are key indicators of healthy growth. Let me just take a second and bicker about my own, our own denomination. We are a Southern Baptist church, and for the past two years, I have attended the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, and there is much to praise God for within our convention. And yet, every annual meeting, I hear people with fancy suits on step up to a stage and talk about how many baptisms or church plants or members or people or on and on we have. Again, those numbers matter but they can all be trending in the right direction and you can still not be achieving healthy growth. So, PBC family, let us not think that just because the baptismal waters are filled here, that that means healthy growth is happening. Let's not think that just because the parking lot might be full, that healthy growth is happening, or or just because you have a, a little less room around you on a Sunday morning, that that means healthy growth is happening. We certainly want all those things to happen, but that doesn't mean that healthy growth is happening. In the text... There are, I think, four key marks of healthy growth. Four. The first is unified diversity. Unified diversity. Look at verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain, what? The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. I want you to notice two things in those verses. First, there's diversity, right? You see there's apostles and, and some of, there's, there's prophets and there's teachers and there's shepherds and there's saints. There's people that have titles and people that don't. If you paid attention to the passage I read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, there's Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus. There's diversity. There's men. There's women. There's slaves. There's free persons. There's diversity in this church. And yet there's also unity. What we want, a mark of healthy growth in the local church is not, hear me church, it is not uniformity. Uniformity is when everybody gets in line and everybody just checks the right boxes and we're all just kind of clones of each other. Do you ever play the game Lemmings? Half of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But I remember as a young boy in the early 90s watching my mom play this game called Lemmings and there's these little yellow guys with green hair and you got to solve these puzzles and once one starts going one direction every single one follows them and if one starts heading to a cliff all the other Lemmings follow we don't want a church of Lemmings Uniformity means that all of us just say what we're supposed to say and we just agree because that's what we're supposed to do. Unity is different. Unity is deeper. Unity is richer. Unity says even if we don't agree on everything, and we don't, 
we agree on the most important things. And we choose to plant a flag around the most important things and unite there. And the lesser things that we sometimes disagree over, we're willing to hold those with an open hand. You will, in this church, perhaps find people that have different views than you on all kinds of things. People that might think differently about Halloween or alcohol or what, how to dress to church or which party to support in November or any number of issues. Here's the question. Is a healthy church the church where we all agree on all of that stuff? Or where we find what are the most important things, let's agree on that. Let's attain unity of the faith. Not unity of the practice, but unity of the faith, which includes a knowledge of the Son of God, where we unite around doctrine, what we believe. We disagree on lesser things, but we're united on the truth of who we are, who God is, what the gospel is, what, who Christ is, what Christ has done, what the scriptures are, what our mission is. It's so tempting, Christian, to, to force unity over something smaller than the unity of the faith. Unified diversity, that's a mark of healthy growth where we can disagree over some things, but agree over the main things. That's the first mark. The second mark is spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Look at verse 13. He mentions mature manhood. Mature manhood. Now, now to our sisters, this is not excluding you, but Paul is using a metaphor. The metaphor of, of a, a man growing up. Listen, we live in a culture today where we don't really know what mature manhood means anymore. In fact, just the other day, I was listening to a, an artist named Ben Rector who wrote a song with Thomas Rhett, uh, and I think the title is, What is a Man? Listen to some of these lyrics. Is it the things you've done, the places that you've been, chasing down some dream you've been imagining? Or is it making peace with who you are and where you stand? I'm trying to find out what makes a man. I'll tell you something, it's none of those things. A man is none of those things. Mature manhood in the ancient world, in Paul's mind, mature manhood would have been someone who has grown to the point where he is able to have a family and provide for them. Now, not every man was able to do that but where you've grown to the point where you can reproduce and care for those in your charge. That's mature manhood. So let's apply that to everybody in this room, men and women. Mature manhood, spiritual maturity. Here's what that means, church. Are you spiritually reproducing? Are you helping other people follow Jesus. Is there behind you, Christian, any saints that are nearer to Jesus because of how you've helped them, 
because of how you've encouraged them, because of how you've walked alongside of them. That's spiritual maturity. It is not knowing a bunch of information. There are plenty of Christians that could ace the systematic theology exam, but they've never helped anybody follow Jesus. Spiritual maturity is the ability to help other people follow Jesus, to reproduce, to make disciples. That's a mark of healthy growth in a local church. A third mark is theological stability. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. We don't want to be children anymore. We want to grow up. And then he shows us what children are like. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul pictures here Christians that just like a boat in the middle of a storm, battered left and right by the waves, tossed to and fro by the winds, Christians who every time the next wind of of faddishness comes across in the Christian world that blows them away. Christians who begin to question things they would never have questioned 20 or 10 or 5 years ago. Christians who call themselves followers of Jesus but begin to wonder, is marriage really what the Scriptures teach? Do we really have to draw the line on sex and gender? Is the unborn really a person worthy of protection? And we begin, become tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. As the world questions what God has revealed in nature and the Scriptures, a Christian who has no theological roots begins to question too. A key mark of a healthy, growing church is theological stability, where the winds of culture and the waves of the world can crash against this body, but we say we will not stop trusting in what God has revealed to us in His Word. We have lashed ourselves to the mast, and we will not let go regardless of what the world says, regardless of what they might do, we will cling to Christ. Theological stability. And finally, a fourth mark, and this one might come as a surprise to some of us, relational dependency. Relational dependency. Now, this is very different When you grow physically, as you grow, you actually become less dependent upon the people around you. Parents of young kids, you remember those times maybe when your young child, son or daughter, for the first time you're about ready to make that peanut butter and jelly sandwich and they say, no, I got it. And they begin to do it themselves. 
Now, they make a mess all over the kitchen. They don't clean that up until they're 18 or 19, maybe not even then, but that's a different story. What you're seeing is they're becoming less dependent. They don't need me as much as they used to. Wow, they're actually beginning to become independent. And physically, that's what happens. As we grow, we become less dependent on the people around us. But spiritually, it's the opposite. As you grow spiritually, you are more dependent on those in your spiritual life. That's the picture we see in verse 16. Look at the text. From whom the whole body joined and, look at this, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lone Ranger Christian, let me challenge you. You cannot grow healthy by yourself. The Lone Ranger Christian can no more grow healthy by himself than an amputated limb could grow healthy, cut off from the body. You, dear brother, sister, disconnected, isolated, cut off from the people of God, minding your own business, keeping to yourself, doing your own thing, leave me alone, thank you very much. You, dear brother, sister, listen, you cannot, you will not grow spiritually disconnected from the body. As we grow spiritually, we grow in a relational dependence upon each other. We grow in our need for each other. And this is where that crucial identity that we talk about here at PBC as family, that's where it comes in. We are family. We grow together. We need each other. A key and crucial mark of a healthy, growing church is a growing recognition of my need for you and your need for me. Those are the marks of healthy growth. That's what healthy growth looks like. Before we get too excited on a Sunday morning, where we see there's fewer empty chairs than there was the week before. Before we get too excited when the parking lot's a little bit more full than it was a month before, let's ask ourselves, is God doing these things? Is God growing in these ways? And when He is, praise the Lord. Let's consider, number two, not only the marks of healthy growth, but the means to healthy growth. Uh, most of us have heard the phrase, the end justifies the means, right? The end, that, that's the desired goal or the outcome. The means are the resources that you use to achieve that goal. So, for example, if your end goal is weight loss, what means might you employ? What are the two big ones? Diet, exercise. That's the means, right? Okay, so let's apply this to healthy growth in the church. If our goal is healthy growth, what means should we employ to get there? Actually, that's not really the right question. Because 
Healthy growth isn't the work of men and women, it's the work of God. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Now look at the next two words. From whom? From Jesus, the whole body is joined and held together. From Jesus, the whole body is equipped. From Jesus, each part is working properly. From Jesus, the body grows. From Jesus, the body builds itself up in love. Who grows the church? Jesus does. You remember in Caesarea Philippi, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who do you all say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, some say John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Jesus, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And remember what Jesus says? He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, listen, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There is a sense in which the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands of books about church growth are just silliness. It's Jesus does it. Jesus is the one who grows His church. So the better question, the, the right question, is what means does Jesus use to grow his church? Or maybe you think that question doesn't matter. Who cares? Jesus is going to do it. It doesn't matter. Let him do what he wants. Well, let me ask you a question. Parents, your children, young children, who causes them to grow? Talk on me. Who causes them to grow? The parents? Who causes, who? Some of you are afraid to tell me. Who gives growth? God does, right? He's sovereign. He's in control. He, he holds the molecules in their bodies together. He causes them to grow. But you would not say, dear parents, you would not say, God's going to do what He wants. It doesn't matter. No matter what I do, God's going to cause my child to grow. No. You know that God, even God, uses means. So God grows your children, yes, but someone said food, through the food that parents feed their children, right? God uses means. So what means does Jesus use to grow His church in a healthy way? Two, two means clearly taught in this text and I think repeated throughout the New Testament. The first one is God's Word. What means does Jesus use to grow His church? He uses the Word of God. If you remember, John 17 tells us about the prayer that Jesus prayed the night that He was betrayed. It's called the high priestly prayer, a beautiful prayer prayed by Jesus as he's preparing to die. And in that prayer, he says to his father, sanctify them, my people, sanctify my people in the truth. 
Your word is truth. Here's what Jesus is saying. Make my people grow through your word. Can I just tell you something, Christian? Just pause for a second. You don't magically grow. I think maybe there might be some Christians perhaps in the room that are waiting for God to just kind of bonk you over the head with growth juice. Not gross juice, growth juice. And you're just, I mean, like you're going to be, you're just in here and you're just kind of ho-hum on a Sunday morning and boom, whammo, growth. And all of a sudden your life is upside down. You're on fire for Jesus. That is not how it works. It can, I suppose. It's never happened to me. And I don't think that's the way that God normally works. God uses means. Just as your little children grew as they were nourished by food, you, Christian, grow as you are nourished by the Word of God. If you wonder, why am I not growing? One of the first questions I would ask you is, tell me about your time in God's Word. God uses His Word to grow His people. Paul alludes to the same reality in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 11. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, it might not seem like it, but the scriptures are all over what I just read to you. So, for example, the apostles and prophets. When Paul refers to them, I don't think he's referring to an ongoing office in the life of the church. I think Paul's referring to two offices of people who wrote our scriptures. Let me show it to you. Same letter, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of what? Apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Who wrote the majority of the Old Testament? Prophets. And who wrote the New Testament? Apostles. And so here, Paul in Ephesians 4, he's telling us that we are built on a foundation of what God has revealed to us in the Scriptures. He's given us apostles and prophets. He's given us evangelists. Evangelist literally just means a good news teller, somebody who tells the good news, who speaks the good news. Well, what's the good news? Well, it's clearly given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That word gospel literally means good news. That I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Here's the gospel, really simply. God is holy. We are not. Because of that, we are in big trouble. And yet God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, and rise from the dead so that whoever repents and believes in him can have everlasting life. That's the message that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. But I want you to notice something. 
Over and over again, he says in that passage, according to what? The scriptures. The scriptures. God uses the gospel given to us in the scriptures to help his people grow. And then he says, back in Ephesians 4, shepherds and teachers. There he's referring to those who teach and preach God's word to God's people. So again, all over verse 11 and 12 are the scriptures. He's given us prophets to write the Old Testament, apostles to write the New Testament, evangelists to tell us the good news of Jesus as recorded in the scriptures, and pastors and teachers to teach God's word to us. God uses his word to grow his people. That's the means that God uses. This is one reason, church, why at PBC we strive to keep the scriptures all over what we do when we gather. We read the scriptures, we sing the scriptures, we pray the scriptures, we preach the scriptures, we respond to the scriptures. Why? Because that's what God uses to grow His church. There is no gimmick, there is no formula that can do anything to grow a church in health better or even, even compare even close to what God does through His Word. There's nothing like the Scriptures to grow God's people. There's a second means that God uses. He uses His Word and He uses His people. God's Word delivered through God's people. Notice the goal of the shepherds and teachers in our text. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he gives the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Notice the goal of shepherds, the goal of teachers, the goal of your elders, the goal of your pastors is not to be the doers of ministry, but to equip you to do the ministry. And what's that ministry look like? Look at verse 13. Till we all attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, here's your ministry, Christian, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want you to notice the corporate goal in these verses. Paul does not say that you individually shouldn't be a child, but that we as a family should no longer be children. Christian, your job is bigger than your personal holiness. Your job includes the holiness of God's people. 
You say, well, I don't want it. Too bad. That's what you've been called to, Christian. That's what the Word calls us to do. This is what Jesus has equipped you to do. You might not feel like it, but you have. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been equipped to be the type of person who speaks the truth in love so that the body grows. God's word spoken by God's people. In the book, The Trellis and the Vine, the authors argue that many Christians think of the church like a NASCAR or Formula One race. You know, there's one driver, and the rest of the people involved work in the background. They might work on the pit stop crew. They might help the finance team. They might find sponsors and organize the logos to be painted on the cars. But the driver's the superstar. He's the focus, and the rest of the team just works in the background to support him or her. Similarly, a lot of Christians think the pastor is the professional. It's everybody else's job just to simply support him, to help him get up there and shine. Nothing could be further from the truth. They argue that the Bible paints a different picture. Instead of thinking of the church like a, a pit stop crew, think of us like a soccer team. In a soccer team, there are leaders, there are captains, there are different positions, but everybody's a player, and all of us work together to move the ball downfield. I was surprised when I was reading a commentary on Ephesians, Richard Koken uses the same idea, and and, uh, he actually had an image in his commentary to kind of show what this looks like. The game, uh, that's the, the congregation, us together, faithfully growing in holiness. There are teachers, yes, but their job is to equip us to do the work. Rather than looking at yourself as the onlooker, you're not in the stands. Those watching are your colleagues, your neighbors, your friends, your family, our community. They're watching as the Spirit is shining His light on what God is doing through His people in His church. That's what God is doing and how He uses His Word and His people to bring healthy growth in the church. Christian, your job is not merely to watch the ministry unfold in front of you, but to roll up your sleeves and get in the game. Go back for a second to those four marks of healthy growth we talked about. United diversity, spiritual maturity, theological stability, relational dependency. It's all of our job, Christians, to help promote those virtues in this church. God uses His Word and His people. If the means that Jesus uses to grow His church are God's Word through God's people, then how can we structure our life together to help that happen? Let me conclude with a method for healthy growth. You might be wondering, what's the difference between means and methods? Well, the means are the instruments or the equipment that are used to accomplish something. The methods are the techniques or procedures used to accomplish that thing. So, for example, if I told you to dig a hole, the means you might use could be a a shovel or a post hole digger or an auger 
or your bare hands. Your methods would be how you use those tools that are given to you. So I want to conclude this morning by proposing to you one method for us at PBC to use God's Word and God's people to build this church up in love. I want to be careful. I worded this last point deliberately. I did not say the method for healthy growth, but a method. It could be. This might not be the best method, but it is a method, and it is the method that, at least for now, we have adopted here at Pocosin Baptist Church. So how do we use the tools that God has given us? He's given us His Word. He's given us His people. How do we use those tools? What methods do we use to build the church up in love? I want to suggest to you that Sunday sermons are not sufficient for this. It's not enough. Listen, um, I'm not saying that I don't believe in preaching. I, I've devoted my life, much of my life, with God's help and by His grace, to preaching, faithfully studying, preaching, understanding, preaching, faithfully preaching faithful sermons. I said faithfully a lot. I believe in preaching. It's necessary, but it's not enough. Here's a couple of reasons why. When you listen to a sermon, you're listening to one person talk, right? But look at Ephesians 4. It's not one person talking, is it? It's the whole body speaking the truth in love. You're listening to me and... and if you're paying attention, you're not talking to each other. Sunday sermons are necessary. We need this time to gather, be equipped, and then the work of the ministry begins. So Jamie Dunlop, in one of his books, says that the Sunday morning sermon isn't the finish line for word ministry. It's the starting line. This is where the ministry begins when this is over. When I shut my mouth and you all start talking, that's when the work, the ministry starts. So what we do here in this gathering is essential, but it's not enough. Sunday school, another thing that we do here at PBC, can be helpful, but it still, I would argue, largely misses the mark. I'm not saying Sunday school is not helpful or important. It is, but it doesn't give us this type of word ministry, does it? You go to a Sunday school class, you're usually listening to one person most of the time, aren't you? It's not bad. It's helpful. Hopefully, you're learning things. And by the way, you're only with a smaller subset of the congregation. Often, those subsets are split up based on gender or age. You're not really cultivating unified diversity, getting to rub shoulders with people you don't normally rub shoulders with. So, we need a different method we need a method where God's people spend time together. We need a method where we talk about God's Word. We need a method where there's diversity. We're not split up by age or gender or life stage. We need a method where we're not with the same group of people forever, but we're getting to know different people all over the church. That's the method that we have envisioned for our fellowship group ministry at Pocosin Baptist Church. Unlike other small group models, 
and other churches, we don't split up our groups based on age. I'll just tell you something. It's been an incredible joy watching how God has used that in the life of our church. I can tell you stories of one of our teenagers coming out of her shell and forming relationships with other members in the church because she spent time in fellowship group with them. Or hearing stories about our dear sister, Linda Forbes. Love you, Linda. Maybe you're watching online right now. Who, who bonded with a young single lady half her age and, and spent time with her after time together in a fellowship group. One of our sisters, Linda Johnson, shared with me this week, due to experiences with rejection and trials, I've held back from involvement in order to avoid being hurt. But the fellowship groups have enabled me to step out without the feeling of being judged. Arthur and I have stepped out of our comfort zones and met, listen to this, some amazing young adults that we otherwise would not have met. That's what we're aiming for. Where we spend time with people we wouldn't normally spend time with. Unlike other small group models, we deliberately end these groups after a season and a lot of churches, not trying to throw shade at any other church, but a lot of churches, you'll be in a small group, and that's your church. That's your group for life, or however long you want to be a part of it. We deliberately put you together, throw you in a room together for about seven to ten weeks, and then rip you apart. Why? Because we want you to get to know more. Can I just tell you some of my memories from the groups that I've been a part of? I did not know how hilarious Arthur Johnson was. That cat is funny. I mean, he is hilarious. I love being in a group with the Hammond family and watching my kids bond with those kiddos over there. Deep, lasting, precious relationships. Learning about Terry Wyndham, formerly Keener, Terry Wyndham and her deep love for 80s music. I would not have known that about that sister if not for some time together with her in a group. Unlike other small group models, we're not adding study requirements. We don't, we're not reading a book or, or watching a video. We read the pa passage of Scripture from the previous Sunday and press that truth into one another's lives. That's what we do. And so I witnessed in my last group, watched as some of our newest members, Miguel and Cassie, opened up about their struggles and watched Many of you love them with truth. If you were a part of our members meeting just a couple of weeks ago, I'm convinced that part of what God used to prime the pump for what we saw in that meeting was the speaking the truth in love that happened in a fellowship group with that couple. That's ministry. Or hearing my dear wife, Holly, and Aaron Jordan over there, bonding over similar upbringings and similar struggles with doubting and finding assurance as they talk to each other about how God helps them to keep following Jesus. That's ministry. That's the church building itself up in love. Now listen to me, Christian. I am not saying this is the only way for PBC to experience healthy growth. Don't mishear me. It's not the method, it's a method. 
It could be that you're in this room and you have another method for regularly involving yourself in the lives of God's people and speaking the truth in love to them. If you do, praise God, keep at it. But if you don't, I challenge you to consider what God might use or how God might use your faithfulness in a group like this to speak the truth in love so that the body builds itself up in healthy growth. I cannot point you to a chapter and a verse saying that you have to join a small group because, and I wouldn't do that to you, but let me conclude with some reasons why it might help you. It's really easy to hide in a large gathering. You know that, don't you? You can sit here, put on your best makeup, your best church outfit, and smile and sing the songs and raise your hand and leave, and nobody really knows you. It's hard to hide in a small group. It's easy to be passive during a sermon, too. You sit here and listen. The guy just talks for a long time, and he keeps talking. You want him to stop because you're hungry and it's time for lunch. He just keeps talking. That happens sometimes. And you can just sit there passively and just listen and listen and listen until you go out the door. It's a lot harder to be passive in a small group where somebody might turn to you and say, what about you? How have you applied that in your life? There's little to no accountability during corporate worship, is there? I mean, there's kind of built-in accountability. We see each other, but what about the hard questions? How's your Bible reading going? How's your prayer life how are you doing with that particular struggle? Most of that type of accountability happens in smaller groups. Most of us are prone to think that we matter too little in corporate worship. My struggles don't matter. My ideas aren't important. In a small group, you realize that they actually do matter. Some of us also think we matter too much in corporate worship. As long as I'm fine, who cares about all these other people? You forget your responsibility to love and serve the whole body. It's a lot easier to remember that when you're committed to a small group of people for a season. And church, those are just some reasons. I could give you more. But let me leave you with this. Whatever method we use, it's going to be imperfect. It's going to hurt you sometimes. You're going to be a part of a group sometimes that you hate. And that's okay. Because the goal, the end goal of it all, is not just to be in a group, but to reach mature manhood, to grow into the stature and the fullness of Christ. And sometimes, yes, it's true, God even uses things we don't necessarily like to help us grow. But what we want is to look like Jesus and live like family. Would you pray with me?